Welcome to MIM Cuts to the Chase podcast series. I'm your host, Guy Hazelman. Our guest today is Brian Funk, who is the head of global credit research at MetLife Investment Management. MIM's public fixed income division has $378 billion of assets under management. It's my pleasure to welcome uh, Brian Funk. Hey, Brian. Guy, thanks for having me today. It's great to be here. Brian, I believe that it's best to review where markets have been in order to get a sense of where they are going and discuss how PMs might adapt accordingly as the landscape changes and they think about what may or may not be priced in. Today, given the rise in inflation and central banks transition away from 14 years of what I call unprecedented and extraordinary monetary accommodation, I think this is a particularly good place to start. And with that as the background, could you provide a quick summary of market behavior during this decade of easy money? I believe those market impacts and the investor psychology that has resulted is actually worthy to mention. Guys, thanks for that question. Uh, Really critical and, and timely. You know, it's been a pretty widely accepted premise that easy monetary policy has lifted all risk assets, narrowed credit spreads, really created a a buy the dip mentality for almost an entire generation of investors. Returns on financial assets over the past decade have been well above historical returns. For traditional long only investors, you know, including credit based long only investors, there hasn't been a, a right or wrong. There's only been really degrees of, of right. Yeah, let's keep that at a high level for a minute. Um, I believe as, as central banks shift direction here, that that psychology that you mentioned is going to change. So what do you think that means for markets going forward? Yeah, look, extraordinary policy accommodation really means that that outsized returns in recent years were – in some sense, borrowed from from the future. And so investors should expect going forward lower annual returns. And it means the returns generated merely from chasing risk, chasing yields, or what we call beta, will not necessarily work out quite as well going forward. Now, I believe there's still reasonable returns to be made, but they will they'll need to be met by you know, more careful security selection, more careful focus on sector, you know, going forward, uh, taking all that into consideration, I expect active and discretionary managers to, to really outperform, provided their process is, is unique, differentiated, uh, and, and focused on uh, really unearthing opportunities at, at the sector level and the security level. I absolutely agree with you there. The borrowing of returns from the future, I refer to as a time inconsistency problem whereby you know the past decade of central bank actions have overly focused on making, if you will, today better, but doing so with a lack of regard for the unintended consequences of tomorrow. The new paradigm of tighter policy will certainly be more challenging, but should, as you say, benefit active and discretionary managers, I think that that the, the trend in passive and indexing has really gotten too far, and, it, and there's uh, some of it is misunderstood. 
Anyway, could you elaborate on why now is a better time, in your opinion, for the active over passive? And and maybe if you could, you could do that by elaborating on or providing some of the detail around what you and your team are doing. And one thing that's that's pretty abundantly clear to us in talking to just about everyone on our, our global credit research team is that 2021 was, was a year of, of pretty massive credit repair for, for just about every sector. I mean, absent those that were probably hardest hit by the pandemic, like in the gaming, lodging, leisure space, and airlines. But, but when we think about 2022, uh, we're looking closely at how some of these companies are, are making use of the, the free cash flow they've positioned themselves to, to generate here this year. So for 2022 and beyond, you know, in a non-accommodative monetary paradigm, along with, quite honestly, fiscal stimulus that's globally and largely in, in, in the rearview mirror, we're super focused on how companies plan to create value for shareholders, particularly those with, with high valuation multiples, um, largely result of, of that accommodative monetary policy that we've been talking about quite a bit today. You know, opportunities for alpha are going to come from this, this analysis and, and help us and our global sector teams pick, pick the winners. I assume that many of those metrics are somewhat different than they used to be really because the pandemic has significantly changed consumer behavior and how workers work and certainly has impacted supply chains and the basic composition and characteristics of, of goods and services generally. With that in mind, is it fair to say that the way that you conduct analysis has adapted to these changes as well? Absolutely, Guy. We're seeing, and I want to stay on the consumer theme here a little bit, we're seeing uh, gross margins compressing across the board, you know, particularly right now for consumer discretionary companies. The level of compression is significant. A lot of the issuers that we're looking at here late in 2021 and early here in the first quarter of 2022 are seeing gross margin compression within this subsector of you know, somewhere between 300 basis points and at the extreme, close to 1,200 basis points, depending on, on the company that we're looking at. Now, you know, the sources of those gross margin pressures come from a, a wide range of, of areas. But broadly speaking, higher commodity costs, higher packaging costs, freight, transportation costs. Obviously, we've got issues around trucker shortages uh, as, as one example that have been exacerbated by you know, the more recent waves of the, uh, the COVID outbreak. You know, higher manufacturing costs in general, you know, this is a function of constrained labor supply and availability. You know, most companies are experiencing uh, some, some significant cost inflation around, quite honestly, all four of these, these different inputs that I've, I've highlighted here today. And I assume these companies are passing those cost increases that they're experiencing along to the consumer where they can, which is one of the factors fueling inflation. Yeah, they're, they're certainly doing their best to, to be proactive, to raise price and, and to recover margin. But right now, those increases that we're seeing are really, especially in the discretionary space, only a fraction of the incremental costs that are hitting the P&L in these businesses today. You know, the bottom line is that, you know, while companies are, are passing on some of these higher costs, to the consumer, it's just really been a small portion. Going forward, you know, we do have some hesitation on this issue as we step back and, 
and take a look at things like consumer goods inventory levels relative to where they were pre-pandemic. Consumers are clearly under pressure here in 2022. We expect that to be the case in 2023 as well as real disposable personal income has declined from artificially inflated levels thanks to transfer payments, which are, are rolling off um, uh, you know, into, into 2022 and, and 2023. You know, in addition, you know, quite honestly, wages, um, it's well reported, are not keeping up with inflation. You know, this implies consumers are gonna have to convert a higher percentage towards inelastic spend, things like food, things like energy. You know, this is occurring as good supply, obviously excluding autos, which is its own animal at this stage, is now well above pre-pandemic trend um, when you think about good supply in real terms. You pull all this together, and you know, we're less than optimistic right now that these companies in durable, non-durable consumer goods space will be able to fully achieve these price hikes to, to totally and completely offset the, the cost pressure at, at this stage, Guy. I'm curious how that decision is made Meaning, what are the factors that determines a company's ability to pass along their input costs to the consumer? There are several factors here, several determinants. First deals with the company's market share, um, as well as, quite honestly, and this is outside of their control, what are their competitors doing? Um, If you're a price follower, you're generally waiting to see what the industry pricing leader does before you move first. There's also at the retail level, right? You got to think about the whole chain. There's, there's pushback. I mean, practically speaking, large, big box retailers, warehouse clubs, they don't immediately accept those price increases. Um, and then ultimately, vendors typically need to give their large customers, you know, two to three months notice that a price increase is going to go into effect. Now, then there's the presence or lack of presence of, of private label, right? Is private label an important player? in whatever sub-segment you're selling into. Are retailers raising their private label prices or are retailers thinking about this as an opportunity to grow market share for their private label product? You know, the answers really depend on the specific product. Uh, It it depends on the specific retailer's objectives around their private label program. And then, you know, also there's a, a matter of performance. We talked about logistics issues. Vendors, they're missing shipment deadlines. If they're having trouble filling orders are going to have a really difficult conversation with the retailers as they go out and try to achieve price to pass on those costs that we discussed. This is an excellent place to wrap up today. You gave us a lot to think about, Brian, and thank you very much for sharing those insights. Great. Thanks so much, Guy. Really enjoyed it today. We'll have you back soon. Thanks. Take care.